You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. It is 7am on Tuesday the 26th of April. And it is very cold. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm, I'm Carnegie and I'm joined in the studio here today with Fung and Evie. How are you both doing today? Great. I feel a bit confused because we've had so many long weekends <laughs> yeah. that I yeah, just don't know what date is. Of course, it's Tuesday. We've got breakfast. But <laughs> at the same time, I think in my body... Don't know what day it is. Yeah, I'm feeling a bit like my cat at the moment, just a bit sort of discombobulated because everything's upside down. He's not been happy that he's been waking up late and getting breakfast late because I've been sleeping in. Um, but I've been having a lovely time. So, <laughs> yeah, no. It, it, did you guys enjoy the nice, warm, long weekend? Yeah, I'm trying to think of what I did. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, I watched the greatest movie ever last night, which is Everything Everywhere All At Once. Oh, I can't wait to see it. <laughs> Highly recommend everyone immediately watch it. It is so, 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 so good. And it's so nice to see something so original on TV with I an Asian cast. Do you know, it's so funny. Every single person who has talked about that to me has just absolutely raved about it. There's no like, oh, I guess it was good. It's just like, it's the best. Um, I think it's just... It's so kind of a little bit sad that, like, something so original just inspires that response in people. Like, yeah, it's not like a millionth Marvel movie or Mm, something like that. For sure. Without giving anything away, um, just I think every element of the movie was amazing. Like, the soundtrack was done by Sunlux. The um, costumes were amazing. Just the storyline and the complexity of the characters is just... And the acting. And the acting, of course. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely recommend watching. Um, All right, well, we will be right back with some news headlines right after this. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao, and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast. Um, 
What's coming up on the show this morning, everyone? So we're going to start off by uh, replaying a segment from uh, the Accent of Women episode on Women Climate Warriors that aired on the 12th of April 2022. Um, We're going to play a speech um, made by Vera Bukachi, who is the research director and co-lead of KDI Kenya. Um, And in the speech, she she talks about um, working with the community of women and girls in Kibera in Kenya to build sanitation and other safe spaces. Amazing. Um, and then we'll be listening to an interview I did with Sam Rudolph from the Consumer Action Legal Center about an ongoing issue with a funeral insurer that was um, pretending to be Aboriginal owned and scamming Aboriginal companies into paying them a ton of insurance for over 30 years um, they've recently gone into liquidation and Sam and I talked about what people can do and how this whole situation came about afterwards uh, we're going to hear from um, Genevieve who spoke with Dr Holly Thorpe who is a sociologist professor um, at the Te Huataki Waiora School of Health at the University of Waikato in um, Aotearoa and they speak about um, the ways in which uh, New Zealand women have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic and um, what work we can do um, to uh, work towards gender equity in the pandemic recovery. And rounding out the show, I will have an interview I did with Emerald Moon, who is a Brisbane-based leftist activist and former candidate for the Australian Greens, who's passionate about climate change and climate action and renters' rights. Um, She ran for the Greens in 2019, but at the moment she's hosting the Serious Danger podcast with Tom Ballard, where they chat to key figures from the left movement and they talk about how to win a future for all of us and just talking about the progressive movement and what we can do to sort of help out as well. Amazing. So lots of great um, interviews coming up. Um, Let's jump into some news headlines. A council in West Wimmera Shire in rural Victoria has voted against raising the rainbow flag to mark Ida Hobbit Day um, on the 17th of May. The mayor has said that there are other things that need to be done, like fixing roads, and that now that gay marriage has been legalised, it's not the domain of local government to be raising a flag. He also equated it to people wanting to change the Marriage Act so that 12-year-olds can get married. Um, Local groups like the Wimera Pride Project, PFLAG, and the Victorian Pride Lobby have all raised objections, saying that the mayor's responses are not only offensive, but also tiresome and old and that people showing support uh, uh, that they should be showing support for the LGBTQI plus community in rural Victoria and it can save lives and keep families together. It just shows just how important even those small acts are because it immediately shines a light on this kind of homophobia that's still in the community. It's truly shocking. Um, when those statements were released, um, I remember seeing a lot of surprise that people thought this way, but like this just goes back to um, the importance of pride rounds and, um, you know, any sort of visible um, symbols of pride because it's a safety issue. It's supposed to be indicating to people that they're safe to be who they are. And, you know, in instances like this where someone isn't Mm. safe. And especially when queer people and notably trans people are, are being used as political pawns during the election right now I think it's 
um, more than ever, it's incredibly important to show solidarity and support definitely um, with the queer community. Uh, in other news, a complete shift. Um, uh, here on Tuesday Breakfast, we've just been sort of keeping tabs on the French presidential elections um, uh, because, uh, you know, we were discussing the rise of the far right in France, um, but it seems that after the second round of the presidential elections, Emmanuel Macron has been re-elected. Um, he scored 58.54% to Marine Le Pen's 4146 Um it is important to note, though, that Macron beat Le Pen um, with a higher margin in 2017. He won um, 66%. So there still is an increase in support for the far right. And we saw that with the variety of candidates um, uh, in, in the first round. Um, what's next for France? Well, they've got a um, National Assembly election uh, that's coming up in June um, where they will elect the 577 members of um, the National Assembly. Um, so we'll keep reporting on that to see what happens there. Yeah. Um, so one last bit of news, uh, just a warning ahead of time that this will include mentions of self-harm and suicide. So if you find that troubling, just come back in a couple of minutes um, a climate activist who lit himself on fire on Earth Day um, a couple of days ago outside the United States Supreme Court building has died. Um, Wynn Bruce of Boulder, Colorado, um, died on Saturday after he set himself ablaze in Washington, D.C. It happened around 6.30 p.m. Um, he is a Buddhist and a, a very strong climate activist. Um, and the message from his um from his colleagues, his fellow activists, and also from um, other Buddhist priests and followers um, that he was friends with, said that they knew Bruce and called his death an act of compassion um, that was designed to bring attention to the climate crisis. Um, he'd been planning it for quite some time. Um, I think it's a really striking symbol of where we're at in the climate movement and climate grief um, that people are now starting to, you know, feel like they, you know, that sort of hopelessness and trying to draw attention to the trouble that we're in. Um, it comes as well as uh, the United Nations has recently um, in the last 24 hours has said that the biggest climate um, polluters in the world need to start reversing their pollution rates within the next year. Um, to avoid irreversible damage. Um, so, yeah, the the urgency of the problem is really highlighted and it feels that people who've been working in the climate movement are, you know, getting to more desperate stages of trying to bring attention to it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, it's very telling that that's where we are. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, a lot of climate sort of talk and um, action falls on deaf ears mm. so mm. yeah um all right well we will be right back with genevieve's interview right after this trans family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents siblings extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. 
We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, 8.55am or maybe you're streaming online at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Vera Bukachi is the research director and co-lead of KDI Kenya. She has dedicated her career to learning from supporting and scaling community-led initiatives related to water, sanitation, waste and sustainability. In this following speech, Vera speaks about climate worries and the work of KDI and how the organisation works alongside communities in Kibera to build sanitation as well as safe spaces for women and girls. This speech aired on Accent of Women on the 12th of April. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Vera Bukachi and I am a civil engineer, uh, but I'm also a researcher um, and a research director at an organisation called the Konkui Design Initiative. And that is what I'm going to be talking about today, um, the work that I do um, in Nairobi. Um, welcome to Nairobi um, and Kibera. Kibera is an informal settlement in Nairobi, the largest one. Uh, 250 hectares, the size of um, Central Park, 200 to 300,000 people. That is where I grew up about half a mile from Kibera. Um, as a young child living in Nairobi and uh, growing up in Nairobi, um, we, as is possibly quite typical for most residents, had a nanny in the house. Uh, my nanny was called Auma, um, and Auma came from Kibera. Um, and the co-face of Nairobi, the, the guards, the factory workers, the nannies, um, the cleaners, a lot of them come from Kibera, like Auma. And she took care of me, and my first experience of Kibera being about seven or eight years old was actually being uh, taken by Aoma to her home. Um, and walking into Kibera from a very green leafy suburb into Kibera where there was lack of sanitation, uh, really uh, bad access to uh, clean and possible water. Um, you know, there was a lot of mud at the time, you know, so you had to kind of walk with your gumboots. So there was a lot of challenges that even I, as a seven or eight year old, remember. I went to high school here, um, again, right next to Kibera. Um, and I knew I wanted to be an engineer because I liked to fix things. I liked maths. I liked physics. Um, but I also knew that in a school that I was in, which was a middle-class school for Nairobi, we still had water problems. We still had sanitation problems. We were a school that grew too big for itself. Therefore, you had to learn how not to go to the toilet in the daytime if there was no water. Because if there was no water, you don't want to be sharing 10 toilets amongst 800 girls. So you had to learn how to do that. And I say that because of the privilege I had compared to people who were living in Kibera. You know, I could say sometimes uh, I have that situation, but for someone else, that is all the time they have that situation. Um, and I worked there, the Concurie Design Initiative, around the corner from Kibera. Um, and after I went to study civil engineering, um, lived in London, 
um, worked for a few companies there, I knew I wanted to come back and work in the water and sanitation space in Kibera. This is the kind of spaces that we work in. We as uh, residents um, of Nairobi may not always see this. And this is the kind of spaces we work in. And we convert spaces like these, waste spaces in informal settlements like Kibera, into spaces like these, which can be used uh, by residents. And they're called productive public spaces. They serve physical, social, and economic benefits. We work alongside communities and residents to design these spaces. KDI, my organization, has been working for 12 years um, and has done not one, not two, not three, not four. Uh, we've got to the point where we now have up to 11 productive public spaces we've been designing with residents in informal settlements. Now, if you lived in a place like Kibera um, and you talk about informal settlements and the densities that you have, you can imagine that the type of spaces that, if you talk about vacant space, there will be waste spaces, spaces that even a resident of Kibera doesn't want to live in, may not want to use. They have issues of flooding, issues of um, absolute pollution, um, solid waste disposal. So those are the kind of spaces that we've been converting. And our work got us to realize just how many of these spaces are along the rivers. And going back to the story about Auma, and actually, in the secondary school that I was in, the girls I was with were from leafy suburbs, but also from Kibera. You'd get to learn what life was in Kibera for these women and, and for the girls. And I'll just highlight a few things. There's lack of safe spaces. Um, the type of public spaces that typically exist in Kibera are probably more geared towards children or towards men. So you'll find a football pitch. You'll find a place to play your video games. You may not find spaces that are safe for women and for girls. Limited spaces for creative or um, educational pursuits. Again, for women and for girls are the kind of spaces that you wouldn't traditionally find. Safe sanitation. Um, I don't know if you've heard about a flying toilet, but it's essentially um, if you cannot actually access a proper toilet and you're a woman and in the evening you need to go to the toilet, um, you're either going to walk down a dark alley in a very unsafe space or find a bag do your thing and throw it somewhere over a wall. And you find that that's the kind of thing that was happening because there's lack of access to safe sanitation for so many women and girls in Kibera. Then we have found in our work, so the research we've been doing with residents um, and with communities, is finding that single women households are more likely to be in climate risk vulnerable areas because they're cheaper. Um, and you'll find single women are going to be living in these more vulnerable places. They're more prone to flood risk. They're more prone to, to facing other risks like disease. Uh, they're the ones who have to take care of their children when they contract cholera or diarrhea, as so many under five children do. And there's a lot of... We've been able to find a relationship between gender-based violence and environmental risk. So the data we have looked and we have found... Um, is for residents living along the rivers, as you can see in some of our maps here, will speak about um, violence um, going higher during um, environmental risk areas, especially when you have flooding. So what have we done as the Concrete Design Initiative to work with women? One, the way in which we engage with residents. Um, these projects are not our projects, they're owned by communities and community groups, and we ask for requests for proposals from community groups, but we ensure that the community groups have got a gender aspect in the proposal. So we ask them, what are you going to do about women and girls in your work? 
And a big reason for this is because we, if you're working with groups in Kibera and the ones we've been working with, very few of them are women-led. So you have to ensure that you've put that on the table. We ensure that women are part of the conversation. So we'll have them speaking in focus groups, but more than that, ensuring that you've got even young mothers involved in the conversations when we're talking about participatory design, making sure that they are right at the front there alongside everybody else and being able to participate in that process. We design for girls, we design with girls. And the way in which KDI works is a participatory approach. So we don't always know what's going to come out on the other side, but we want to have these conversations with people to ensure that these types of spaces are considering um, women and girls. We also talk about upskilling. Um, the typical type of work that we do, and we are building productive public spaces, they will comprise some aspects of construction. You want to make sure that the skilled workers are not only men, which might be typical in most construction sites. And so we've been working with women who've been doing a lot of specific work, especially work like carpentry. And in this particular school, they were building the doors and they were building the windows. And they went through a carpentry academy that was designed by KDI to ensure that they can take this beyond the work that they were doing. And finally, once the sites are in operation, we call them productive public spaces for a reason. They're productive because the operation by the community groups that we work with requires them to make some money and some profit from this work. So in terms of what women might do, in terms of operations, they have communal laundry spaces, which also serve as meeting spaces. They also would be looking at space for education and training, which is fundamental for women. Uh, sanitation businesses, which are designed alongside women so that they know how to be able to run them and have them accommodate women. Uh, savings and loaning groups, uh, income generating businesses, community organizations, all sorts of types of businesses which they can run. So we talk about working at the edges and for women like Auma or for some of my classmates who lived in Kibera, they were living at the edges. And how do we talk about women's activities and environmental risk and scaling impact without having women at the table? So we talk about unsafe, polluted, dangerous for children and girls spaces before. We think we're working at the edges and we hope that working alongside these groups, we're able to promote clean water and sanitation, safe and affordable laundry areas, gathering and meeting places, safe places for safe place spaces for women and their children. So this was a topic that we, um, I had proposed about whether or not women in Kibera can be climate warriors. Um, and the climate warrior is not necessarily, um, you know, girls like Greta who are going to be going and doing um, work on the street. It will also be women like these in Kibera who are running their businesses. Um, and we do that in, you know, very important ways by building opportunities for women, by building friendships amongst women in the work that they do, by building independence among the women because they're better able to take care of themselves if they're independent. And because of the areas that we work in, we hope that we're helping women to build the climate's resilience, not just for them, but for their community. Thank you. That was Vera Bukachi, Research Director and Co-Lead of KDI Kenya. If you would like to listen to the rest of that episode on Women Climate Warriors, you can go to www.3cr.org.au forward slash accent of women. 
Accent of Women is a program by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, and it airs right after Tuesday breakfast from 8.30 to 9 a.m. We're now going to go to a track, and this is one of my favorites. It is called Paprika by Japanese Breakfast. Japanese Breakfast is an experimental pop band um, headed by Korean-American musician, director, and author Michelle Zauner. I'm actually really um, looking forward to starting her memoir called Crying in H Mart, which uh, is about growing up Korean-American, losing her mother, and forging her own identity. This is Japanese breakfast with paprika. The city came slowly I woke from dreams of untying a great knot and unraveled like a braid into what seemed with thousands of separate
That was Paprika by Japanese Breakfast. Last month, funeral insurer Upla, previously known as Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund or ACBF, was liquidated due to financial collapse, leaving Aboriginal families unable to pay for their loved ones' funerals. ACBF has previously been exposed for misleading and deceptive conduct, including selling a low-value product to entire families, including children, and targeting Aboriginal communities as a non-Aboriginal company. Sam Rudolph is the Aboriginal Policy Officer at Consumer Action Law Centre, who are helping victims get compensation for losses suffered through ACBF's collapse. Sam and I caught up earlier this week to discuss what's been going on with UPLA and how victims can get help. So thank you so much for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast, Sam. Can you start by just giving us a little bit of a background on ACBF? Yeah, sure. So um, ACBF, um, also um, known now as UPLA, um, ACBF stands for the Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund. Um, they actually started in the early 90s um, and were, um, I guess, portraying themselves as being um, a fuel insurance plan um, or, fuel, or a, a policy um, or a fund, as, as stated in their name, uh, for First Nations people. Um, and they kind of went to all across Australia and attended community events um, and were signing First Nations people up to these funds um, and were kind of advertising themselves as being more of a savings fund that would go towards your, your funeral um, when you do pass away. Um, what people then eventually found out was it was more of an insurance policy um, and a lot of other issues came up around um, ACBF having misleading and deceptive conduct. Um, so not only were they portraying themselves as being Aboriginally owned and controlled, um, which they we found for a very long time they weren't. Um, they had the name Aboriginal um, in, in their company name. They had Aboriginal artwork as well. So um, I think a lot of First Nations people who were signed up to these policies were, I think, felt quite you know, misled and um, essentially scammed by this company as well. Um, and what we found is that a lot of policyholders um, who did think it was a savings fund um, found that if their policy was wrong, um, if they missed a payment or if it was um, due to other issues, um, even if they paid over the policy amount, which is on average is about $10,000, they wouldn't get the full money back. Um, so some people what we found is had paid up, you know, close to $30,000 because some people have been in these policies for three decades. Um, they would still only get the policy amount. So some people are paying a lot of money into this um, and some were coming out of their, their Slimslink payments as well. Um, and what we found is a lot of people also were having um, not only their children, but their grandchildren signed up to these policies. And we found cases of infants being signed up to these policies as well. Um, so what we're saying is, you know, we have raised issues around um, ACBF, um, who are now known as UPLA, but for three decades, um, different governments have, have known about it. Um, and unfortunately now, um, ACBF, the company has now gone into liquidation. So people have been paying these policies for three decades um, now, unfortunately don't have that plan for them for when they do pass away. There's um, unfortunately no money there for, for their funerals. Yeah, and you know, as you said, with a name like Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund, it sounds like they're trying to target um, vulnerable Aboriginal communities. 
Um, and it also sounds like their customers stayed with them for years. You know, there's some who stuck with them for, for 30 years. Um, you know, and you did touch on this earlier that they are uh, presented as a Aboriginal community, you know, benefit fund. But um, why do you think that the, you know, the people that did sign up, why do you think they stayed that long? Well, that's a really good question. I think, um, well, one, um, there was a lot of people who were employed by ACBF who were actually from community who were also policyholders. And I think they were also led to believe that this was fantastic. Um, there was nothing out there um, in the financial sector or insurance sector for um, First Nations people. Um, and, you know, sorry, business can be really expensive. It's a huge um, part of our culture um, and having a proper funeral and a proper send-off is really important. Um, and I think people know how expensive and how what the burden, I guess, can be on families, just not just for First Nations people, but for anyone. Funerals can be really expensive. Um, and I think that's one of their sales tactics as well. They're kind of playing on the fact that sorry business is a, part, a huge part of our culture. Um, they're playing on the fact that funerals can be really expensive. And I think through some of the um, conversations we've had some of, with some of these policyholders, um, you know, the salespeople would say to them, do you really want your family to have to pay tens of thousands of dollars for your funeral and kind of making them feel like it was their, you know, um, they had an obligation or was their responsibility to make sure that their family didn't have this burden. Um, so what happened was, you know, we're trying to make, you know, people know about the situation. Um, I think one of the reasons why people stayed in these policies was for one, um, the only services that have kind of been dealing with this issue are um, grassroots services who have uh, little to no funding um, and their reach can only go so far. Um, we're concerned that there are some communities that still don't know that they've gone into liquidation as well. We're trying our absolute best. Um, especially in Victoria, there's only um, a, like a handful, like, you know, two from the top of my head, um, Asset Consumer Action and the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service that really give advice on ACBF um, and our reach only goes so far as well. Um, I think also the fact is now that they've also gone into liquidation <clears throat> or as we're kind of having those conversations before that happened, um, some people I think just felt that they've already put so much money into it. Um, there was also this huge concern um, around their policies being canceled and losing all that money. And there was no other option for them to go to another funeral insurer and then start paying all that money again. And some of these people, unfortunately, were um, like elderly and towards the end of their life. So they kind of felt like they had no option. Um, we also have a case where some of the policyholders um, were actually sent letters from ACBF explaining that they have to keep their payments going or their policy will be canceled. Um, some stories that we're actually hearing now from, from people um, is, you know, now they've gone to liquidation, they feel so much shame um, and, they're really hurt by the fact that now there's no money there. They have done the right thing by trying to put money away for their funeral. Um, and they're really upset that, that now their families are now going to have to pay for their funeral when they do pass away. Um, that's why people kept paying. They thought even though they're gone, they're, you know, something might happen, you know, I might pass away soon. Um, that hopefully, you know, there'll, there'll still be money there to help pay for my funeral. So there's a lot of aspects as to reasons why people were paying but the, the main thing was just um people had the their family um as their main concern and not having that burden um and now unfortunately a lot of people are really upset and feel quite ashamed by what's happened 
Yeah, and that again is just exploitation of people who are just trying to do the right thing. Exactly. So what what led to their collapse? So there's a number of things that um, led to it. So um, one thing in particular, I guess, was the Banking Royal Commission. Um, from there, um, the, the Royal Commission really highlighted the misleading and deceptive conduct of ACBF. Um, it really highlighted um, their, their sales practices and um, they weren't really being quite um, transparent with policyholders on what the fund actually was. Um, has been a lot of court action as well, uh, and ASIC has stepped in where they where they have been able to, um, and doing little things here and there. But one thing was, um, I think, coming out of the Royal Commission was that they could not sell or sign up new policyholders without having a specific license. Um, so um, what happened was ACBF um, after the Royal Commission they rebranded to UPLA. They then applied for that license. Um, that license eventually got denied. So. Um, for a long time, they still weren't able to sign up new policyholders. In the meantime, their only money they were essentially were making were people, the existing policyholders, who were who still making their payments, their fortnightly payments. Um, that was the only money that they were making. Um, at the same time, a lot of people um, who found out about the misleading and deceptive conduct um, contacted like people like us um, for assistance, and we were able to... Um, lodge and um, get positive determinations through AFCA. So some people had their whole policies paid out. There was quite a few of those across Australia, in Queensland, New South Wales in particular, where a lot of people were getting positive determinations and payouts um, from AFCA. So essentially, because of those determinations, which is a great thing, um, ACBF were then losing money. Um, so because they had to pay out all those um, determinations. Um, so we could see... Um, from about June last year, oh, this doesn't look great. You know, that's great that ASIC has stepped in and made they can't sign up new policyholders, but it's, it was essentially a Band-Aid fix. It wasn't actually sorting out the issue, um, you know, of potential liquidation and look where we are now. So um, Fund One first went into liquidation and we were like, yep, we knew that was going to happen. But very shortly after then, the rest of the funds went into liquidation. So that's um, essentially what happened. Yeah, uh, you mentioned that, you know, they have been taken to court. Um, what other action has been taken against them previously and what has the result been? Um, there has been a couple of little things here and there. Uh, I think the first um, kind of known um, kind of court action or um, where people kind of raised issues around um, the ACBF, I believe, was in 1992. Um I believe the government at the time uh, was made aware of that and some little things have happened here and there. Um, so I, it's hard to kind of pinpoint exactly the things. There's been a lot of things that have happened over, I mean, 1992 was before I was born. So it's, for me, I'm still kind of shocked to know that this company yeah. was able to, you know, operate for 30 years, basically. So it's just, for me, it's, I'm still shocked to know that. Um, so there have been little things here and there. Um, so I think that a lot of people in community are quite frustrated at the fact that only little things happened over 30 years um, that kind of helps stop them from operating certain ways. One of them, like I said, not being able to sign up with policyholders um, and having to, you know, they then had to provide over financial documents quite a few times and those types of things. Um, but they were, like I said before, just Band-Aid fixes because look what's happened now. I think one of the conversations that we've been having with other consumer groups um, and policyholders as well, is that 
um, if this was a mainstream company or mainstream insurer um, and it was found that they were doing this to, you know, just the regular, I guess, population, it would have been shut down a long time ago, perhaps within five years. Um, the fact that's been happening for 30 years and there's little court actions here and there haven't done anything. Um, look where we are now. So now we're trying to seek a redress scheme. So, yeah. Yeah, that was going to be my next question to you, which is, you know, <laughs> if this is affecting a much broader audience of people and not just primarily Aboriginal communities, you know, I imagine that there would have been a very different response and 30 years is a very very long time for a company like this to have just continued on getting money uh you know yeah it's it's very upsetting yeah. to see um long time yeah so what is the consumer action law center doing to hold people responsible and help those who've been victims of this get some compensation so one thing we've been doing um, for a long time since before I was, I've been working at Consumer Action um, is to try to make people know about the issue. Um, we did um, do a huge submission or um, a huge piece of work for like, um, the Banking Royal Commission around redress. Um, we we're hoping some, for some really positive change from there. Um, for a long time, we have been assisting policyholders um, with making claims through AFCA. Um, we have specialist lawyers that do insurance issues. Um, and they're fantastic lawyers and, um, you know, have been able to get some great determinations um, from AFCA. Um, now what we're trying to do is um, we are now part of a, a, a national kind of campaign, bringing, up, bringing together all the consumer groups who um, have clients um, who, had, who have policies with ACPF who had them previously. Um, there are a lot more clients in Queensland, New South Wales. Um, there are only... There are still a lot in Victoria, um, but I think um, ACBF did target, I would say, the Queensland and New South Wales community a lot more. Um, and what we're kind of doing is using our expertise and our connections with government, um, with the opposition, and even with state government, just kind of telling people and ministers, senators, and just telling them about this horrible issue. Um, so one thing we'll be doing is meeting with as many people as we can um, to let them know about the issue. It's also quite surprising too that a lot of people don't know about the issue um, unless you work in this space or or um, have heard through it from you know through some people. But um, try and make people aware of it. Um, one thing we also are trying to do um, is obviously do media and tell people about this awful company and what they've been doing for such a long time. Another thing we've been doing with it within the water um, campaign team is drafting um, potential redress schemes. We, we do know that um, if um, the government, whoever is elected, um, want to do something to, to assist these people who have been, you know, essentially scammed by this company, we will need to provide some kind of options. Um, so we have drafted a couple of redress schemes that, um, need, that we're going to take to community and get their consultation as well and see whether that works for them. Um, so that's something that we are trying our best to do. Um, and yeah, just trying to get the word out. The, the main thing we can do is um, try and get this as a, a major talking point within um, within government and within the opposition is to get people talking about it. Um, I think one thing we've kind of been talking about as well is we're now in 2022. Um, times are changing. Um, you know, this needs to change. We're talking about First Nations issues more, um, more than ever. We probably need to talk about them a lot more. Um, 
we, you know, we had a great outcome um, with the Telstra fine and how they treated their First Nations customers. Let's carry on and do this as well um, and seek and give people proper redress. We're not asking for handouts. We're asking for, people, for the government to, you know, to, to do the right thing, essentially. Um, governments have allowed this to happen for 30 years. It's now time to, to, to step in and do the right thing. Um, so that's what we're doing. We're just trying to get the word out there, speak to as many people as possible. We've been writing numerous letters um, to, to all different um, ministers and senators. And we've also got an open letter that's being um, launched on Wednesday next week. Um, uh, that's an open letter. And we've had, I would say, close to 120 different um, industry or, um, organizations and consumer groups, um, some really, really big names who have signed on to this letter and support um, for a redress scheme. So there's a lot of things happening in the background there, um, but we're just trying to talk to as many people as possible. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, having uh, the ability to just bury your loved ones and give them a proper dignified funeral is a very, very basic human right. So the government needs to be stepping up in that capacity, whoever wins. Um, I agree. Yeah. If we have any listeners who have been affected by this um, or any listeners who just want to learn more, uh, where can they go? Um, so one thing they can do is go onto our website, um, Consumer Action Law Centre. Um, we do have some information on there on our career help um, website, which is part of Consumer Action. Um, we have some great information um, that was, has been drafted up with our wider campaign team um, about what you can do, the key points of the issue um, and what you can do and lists of organisations that can help you. Um, so even if you're not within Victoria, because Consumer Action, we assist um, Victorians, um, we have a list of numbers that you can call from whichever state that you're in. Um, and we also have um, a number, we understand that this can be really distressful and it has been really distressing for a lot of people in the community. Um, we also have some um, numbers that you can call to, to give some um, free counselling as well. So um, we do have a couple of things that, that we have been able to do um, to try and at least get people some help or point them in the right direction. So um, if you go onto our website, you'll be able to um, have a look at that information um, and, and take it from there. Amazing. Um, that's all we have time for today. But thank you so much for joining us and raising awareness about this extremely important issue. We really appreciate it. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. So that was my conversation with Sam Rudolph from the Consumer Action Law Centre, talking to us about the collapse of funeral insurer ACBF, also known as UPLA, and talking us through what action can be taken against them and how communities who have been affected can get help. We will link to all the resources that Sam mentioned in our show notes later today. So if you did want to know more um, or get in touch with um, Consumer Action Law Center for assistance, um, all that information will be available for you later today. Uh, next up, we're going to play a track by Bombay-based artist Kayan. Um, this is her new release featuring Ocean Tide called DFWM and just a quick language warning on that one. If um, the language bothers you, just come back in maybe four minutes.
on May 1st, the International Day of the Working Classes. We're mobilising for workers' rights, decent living conditions, environmental protection, the rights of Indigenous peoples and in opposition to imperialist war and aggression. There'll be speakers, stalls, food and community singing from midday on Sunday, May 1st at Trades Hall on the corner of Ligon and Victoria Street, Carlton. Then, march around the city, assembling from 1.30pm. And leading up to the day, don't forget April 28th from 5pm, the annual eight-hour memorial event opposite Trades Hall, followed by a 6pm solidarity event, good food, entertainment and speakers. Help us hold the worst federal government in living memory to account. For more information, visit maydayvictoria.com. The Melbourne Mayday Committee is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast uh, and just before that announcement there, we were listening to Bombay-based artist Kayan with her new single uh, DFWM. We are lucky to be joined by Dr Holly Thorpe here on Tuesday Breakfast who is a sociologist professor in Tai Huataki Waiora School of Health at the University of Waikato in New Zealand. Dr. Thorpe is on the show to discuss her recent research focusing on the ways Aotearoa New Zealand women have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic and how we can get back on track towards gender equity in this pandemic recovery. Thank you so much for joining us, Holly. Oh, thanks for having me. It's lovely to join the show. Yeah, such a pleasure to have you here on 3CR. Um, I wanted to begin uh, just with obviously stating the obvious that this pandemic has exacerbated uh, already existing patterns of inequality and especially as your research has focused on uh, gen existing gender disparities. It would be great if you could start us off by running through uh, some of the aspects, you know, that the COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately impacted women. Yeah, I think most people think and feel like they know this, but it is quite good to come back to some of the different elements um, that are coming together, or as we you know, talk about as intersecting um, to affect women, because um, we heard a lot about sort of the gendered effects of the pandemic early on, um, but these we're more than two years into this now, um, so those effects are being further exacerbated. Uh, we can start with you know, the additional kind of caring roles and responsibilities that many 
women are carrying. So that this isn't just mothers, you know, we, we do know about all the additional kind of um, homeschooling and lockdowns. We know about the kind of emotional um, exhaustion and impact of that. But women in general typically pick up the lion's share of those family um, caring responsibilities, whether it's for elderly um, parents, um, or often a lot of work with the communities as well to support others um, when they're sick or when they're struggling. So there's all that kind of emotional labor that, you know, men are doing as well, but women tend to pick up the majority of that. And they've been doing so for more than two years of this pandemic now. If we look at uh, job losses, uh, we have seen that um, worldwide women have lost more than 64 million jobs. And that was just in 2020. So that's, that came to about US 800 billion in terms of loss of income for women. Um, in New Zealand, we definitely saw that as well. Women lost of the uh, pandemic-related jobs, about 90% of those jobs. And, you know, we need to look at how gender intersects with uh, ethnicity here. So in New Zealand, that was predominantly Māori and Pacifica women who lost those jobs. So, uh, like you said, these inequalities were already there, but they've been exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, we can also look at things like, you know, rates of domestic violence have uh, skyrocketed during this pandemic. So the home is not always a safe space for women. Um, some people talk about this as the double pandemic or the shadow pandemic. Um, so we've got all of these kind of things coming together to impact women's uh, physical and mental health. Uh, international research has shown that uh, women's mental health has been uh, disproportionately affected. And because of all of this kind of emotional labor, the economic instability, uh, and we know that um, many women who are juggling very, very busy and exhausting home lives, are, many of them are stepping away from some you know, quite high powered jobs as well, um, because they're just finding it unsustainable to be carrying uh, all of this emotional uh, labor that they're doing. So we know also that women are not, are not a homogenous group. So the pandemic is uh, affecting some women uh, much worse than others. But yeah, these are the things that are coming together and that are really impacting uh, women's lives. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you said, a lot of women and especially women of colour um, are mostly in, you know, service related jobs, which completely got, uh, obviously, either they were essential workers at the front lines um, or their jobs pretty much got eradicated due to job cuts and everything. Um, and I wanted to focus on your recent research, uh, looking into how New Zealand women have found different ways to cope through various stages of the pandemic. Um, and this is obviously in response to what seems to be a lacking uh, response of governments towards supporting women through the pandemic. I just wanted to ask you what sort of governmental and public sector initi initiatives were proposed to try to mitigate further gender disparities during the pandemic and why they might have missed the mark a little bit. Yeah, it's really interesting to start looking across countries now um, because we've got data and we can see that those countries who um, you know, brought different um, parts of government and leadership teams together, uh, you know, the COVID um, response teams with um, agencies focused on women and gender equality, you know, countries that have brought those two together are making a lot more progress in terms of um, the gendered elements of recovery. And actually, you know, so some countries have, have thought about this right from the very beginning. 
Um, some others have you know, come to it a little bit later on. In New Zealand, for example, in 2021, we had the wellbeing budget, which was very much around you know, trying to support back into employment those most affected by COVID, uh, including women. And yet actually what happened in practice was investments in male-dominated industries like construction and roading. So actually, you know, there was not a lot of um, acknowledgement of women's roles as you know, primary carers. And actually it was a real missed opportunity for thinking about gendered recovery initiatives. But you know, around the world, some countries have, have been very proactive in that. You know, Sweden, um, Switzerland, Canada, Italy, um, they've had sort of um, very interdepartmental um, alignments trying to work, work through um, gendered initiatives for the recovery process. Um, and interestingly, the United Nations, um, the UNDP, they've actually now got a COVID-19 global gender response tracker that actually there's a map they're, they're bringing in the data, they're bringing you know, for different countries and then basically measuring policies that address women's economic and social security, uh, including unpaid care work, uh, the labor market and violence against women. And so we can actually see how different countries are now starting to pan out in terms of uh, gender equity initiatives based on the policies that different countries have um, initiated and, and led through. And, and some, some countries have had some really sort of innovative approaches, and we probably haven't heard about these enough. Um, early on in the pandemic, we saw the, um, the Hawaii State Commission of the Status of Women. Um, they came through with a, a really cool um, proposal. It was titled Building Bridges, Not Walking on Backs, a feminist economic recovery plan for COVID-19, which really prioritized the voices and knowledges of Indigenous women um, and, and really important, you know, ideas there led by women's voices. And so, you know, what we're seeing around the world is a very uneven sort of landscape in terms of how governments have thought about gender and their recovery plans. Mm -hmm. And we're going to keep seeing this kind of the effects of this playing out over the next few years. Yeah, I mean, you see it here with Australia. A lot of the time governments throw money at the issue and even with our most recent federal budget, um, with addressing like uh, gender inequality, lots of throwing money at it, but not a lot of setting up actual systems that will work um, and structures that are led by women. <laughs> um, you know, given this lack of public sector help in some parts of the world, and I can see that you did discover through your research ways in which women supported themselves privately. Uh, what sort of things were women doing to care for themselves and others during this time? Yeah, so this research, you know, as soon as the pandemic um, arrived at, you know, at our shores uh, here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, we got the research up and running very quickly. Um, so we were trying to hear um, the voices, the stories, the experiences of everyday New Zealand women. Um, and then this project is, is longitudinal in the sense that uh, each year we've been hearing um, different groups of women um, the project that we've just been running was with a, um, a, a cross-cultural research team. So we have um, Māori, Pacifica, uh, Muslim women, migrant women on that research team. So we're hearing the stories from, you know, the full diversity of, of New Zealand women. And then now I'm just in the process of starting a, a James Cook Fellowship for two, two more years to basically extend this, this research running through to hear more voices of New Zealand women. And you know, because these different stages of the pandemic have, have impacted women differently. So actually to hear about, um, you know, these different stages and um, the effects 
is really interesting and useful. Um, but mostly, you know, a real key priority for us is to make sure that we're capturing the diversity of experiences um, of women, different age groups, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different cultural and religious backgrounds, um, different sort of family dynamics, you know, in, you know, women living alone versus women with full households, um, with a lot of caring responsibilities, you know, really it's impacted women in really different ways. But across the research, we've really been hearing, um, you know, despite policies not really uh, supporting women, women have found their own strategies to try to help them um, cope, um, to help them um, find um, peace and calm and um, happiness and joy in amongst all of the uncertainty and fear um, and exhaustion. And you know, some of some women turned um, to their religions to help them. Others turned to their cultural um, communities and their friendship groups. Um, many women used um, digital technologies to connect with family and friends and help them get through in those ways. Um, a lot of the women in our groups used, um, you know, exercise, um, movement, getting out into nature, whether it's you know walking in the local park, getting to the beach for a walk if they can. Um, a lot of the women talked about finding those very small moments in the day that give them some pleasure and actually trying to be present with that moment. So whether it was noticing the trees falling, you know, the leaves falling from the trees in autumn, you know, actually slowing down and, and noticing that or a cup of coffee in their favorite cup and actually trying to really savor that moment and be present with it. So these are just very small everyday things, but actually have helped women. Um, but we saw actually some really um, quite powerful initiatives by women to care for others, to help others get, get through these difficult times. And these were often un, you know, unpaid kind of work that they were doing to help their communities get through. Um, and I think we can learn a lot when we actually stop and listen and learn from women um, who have actually, many of them have helped our communities get through these difficult times, but often their stories are not heard. You know, we're not, they're not seen, they're not celebrated, but women have played a really key role in, in um, you know, getting our communities through very, very difficult times. Yeah, definitely. Even we saw here with a lot of migrant women, um, obviously not having, you know, being, I think, completely fairly enough skeptical on health systems and vaccinations and everything we saw this mm. incredible grassroots movement of a lot of migrant women supporting other women to get vaccinated and to say that it's okay to get vaccinated and you know here's a comfortable environment for you to get vaccinated instead of kind of going to those big vaccination hubs where it was pretty scary mm. Mm. just to finish this off um in an i like to say in an ideal world because you know, that's obviously not the world we live in at times. Uh, but what can governments and policymakers do to prevent the, the further derailing of gender equity, especially after this pandemic? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it can be quite simple. We need more women um, around those tables um, where decisions are being made that affect women. And we've got to be aware of, of whose voices are there as well, um, making sure um, it's not just gender diversity, but also, you know, cultural diversity as well. Um, so we actually have uh, leadership and policies and initiatives um, that support the full spectrum of women in our societies um, and our incredibly multicultural societies. And when those women are at those tables and helping make those decisions, their voices, their knowledge needs to be 
heard and valued and respected. And you know, too often people making decisions for women are not representative of the women who those decisions actually impact. And so, you know, a key thing in our research is, is trying to create space for the voices and the knowledge and the learnings uh, of everyday women. They've learned a lot and actually when we stop and listen to them. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot to learn here. But, you know, in terms of governments um, and policies, they've got to be coming from women and for women. And that needs to be the, the full diversity of women in our societies. And we've, yeah. we've got so far to go in that regard. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I love that ending point of, you know, as the simple as having a conversation with someone, um, you learn a lot by just listening. Um, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Holly, for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you this morning. Well, thanks for having me. That was Dr. Holly Thorpe, sociologist professor at University of Waikato in New Zealand. She was just discussing with us her recent research, which focuses on how New Zealand women have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic and how we can get back on track towards gender equity in this pandemic recovery. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Coming up now, we'll have a song by Alice Skye, who's an Australian singer and songwriter. She's a Wagaya woman from Horsham, and in 2017, she was the Triple J Unearthed National Indigenous winner. This is a song from her second album, I Feel Better But I Don't Feel Good, titled Grand Ideas.
That was Alex Skye, who is an Australian singer and songwriter with her song titled Grand Ideas. Coming up now, we've got an interview with Emerald Moon, who is a Brisbane-based leftist, leftist activist and former candidate for the Australian Greens. I sat down with her yesterday afternoon to chat about her podcast and also just talking about the progressive movement in Australia and what that means for the political movement. Emerald Moon is a Brisbane-based leftist activist and former candidate for the Australian Greens who's passionate about climate action and renters' rights. Emerald ran for the Greens in the safe Liberal seat of Bowman in 2019 and at the moment she's co-hosting the Serious Danger podcast with Tom Ballard where they chat to key figures from the left movement. They talk about how to win a future for all of us and also our broken political system. Emerald, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR. Hey, Evie, thank you so much for having me. Um, just to start off, I think what would be a good starting point is just to have a chat about how you came to be a leftist or more specifically a socialist. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I'm from I'm from the Northern Rivers, so and which you could maybe tell by the fact that my name is Emerald Moon. It's a very like Mullumbimby <laughs> name. Um, but yeah, definitely hippie parents. And I feel like I had kind of just a um, like an ecological politics, like an environmental politics and a fairly socially progressive politics, um, but with no understanding of like electoralism or, you know, the voting system. I kind of got to understand that during uni, I accidentally took a, a politics class and I was like, oh, this is interesting. But <laughs> <laughs> I was very much in that kind of just like, yeah, social progressivism, like no class politics and very just hackish, like reading The Guardian live blog of, of parliament like oh just, I love that <laughs> yeah very like uni student politics um yeah and then only I think when I started hanging out with people in the Queensland Greens like in Brisbane in particular that kind of just learning from from those folks and like getting radicalized and I think in particular getting quite radicalized around like connecting my experience um as someone who'd always rented and my mom had always rented um that was probably the most like significant factor in shifting me to the left I would say. That's similar to like even though I didn't really have like the sort of hippie um background yeah. <laughs> um but like I think we have a similar trajectory and sort of you start off with that sort of guardian reading progressivism <laughs> yeah. and then you learn a little bit more as you keep going um and then sort of you meet people and you read more and like you don't kind of learn these things through high school do you? <laughs> I, I, I got to uni not knowing how voting or anything worked. It was all totally oh, really? new to me. Yeah, wow. yeah. Like even I was, I was like involved in, you know, climate related activism and things like that in high school. But for some reason, yeah, like I just never learned that kind of basic, um, yeah, or civics, I, I guess, as, as a kid. So I really had to kind of catch up, I felt. Let's talk about the Queensland Greens in particular, which is a rising force in the progressive movement in Australia, I feel. I think like they're getting a lot of attention at the moment, um, both on the state and local level. Um, what kind of policies have proven popular in local and state campaigns? Like you participated in them. Um, and what do you feel has um, informed federal policy? Yeah, it's because like I say, like I think that my political, I guess, like maturing or really when I kind of became radicalised was in the Queensland Greens. Like I see that as very much my political home 
Um, and that's because the Queensland Greens, particularly over, I would say since maybe, yeah, 2015, 2016, um, have been advancing this like explicitly, you know, democratic socialist type of politics rather than um, just an environmentalist politics or even, yeah, a, a somewhat kind of liberal environmentalist politics that, that the Greens had maybe come from. Um, and we, yeah, so in 2016, we had our first councillor elected to Brisbane City Council, which is John O'Shree, a very prominent kind of like um, activist and, and communist in Brisbane. We then had um, our first state MP elected in 2017, which is Michael Berkman, um, who I've worked for for the last few years um, on and off. And then, yeah, in 2020, we doubled that representation. We got um, another state MP and we're now looking at maybe getting federal representation in like Griffith and possibly other Brisbane seats. And so it's kind of been one of the only states where like the Greens vote has been rising. And I think that Finally, in, in this election in particular, you're seeing the federal parties start to acknowledge that and, and really like kind of go all in on the political strategy that the Queensland Greens have been using over the last few years. And that's not only like policies like, you know, um, yeah, like like social policies like bringing dental into Medicare um, and particularly around like universalism of free childcare or free education um, things like that and, and quite populist kind of social policies um, and things like not being afraid to say that you're going to increase taxes on billionaires and big corporations, which arguably I think the Greens were a bit afraid to do, even even in the last federal election. It's just being bold enough to say those policies, I think, which, um, you know, major parties have struggled quite a bit with and I think is the first time that I'm seeing the Greens actually do that, yes. you know, and say it out loud. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting to see that because, yeah, it's it's like finally they're actually going in because they've seen it working in Queensland right um and it's and but what's really important as well is I think combining that platform and, and that politics with a strategy that's very much centered around a um like a field campaign rather than just a, a media campaign um it's very much centered around Donald King like if you want to win a seat you need to have thousands and thousands and thousands of conversations and they're not just those kind of conversations that are like gathering data or um yeah, just kind of like one-sided, like there's a very specific kind of strategy around Donald King that was, um, I, I think, has really been taken from, yeah, a lot of the work that particularly in South Brisbane, the crew, the Greens crew um, in Brisbane have been working on over the last few years. Yeah, I, I want to give a lot of credit to that strategy in particular, because I think it's just one of those things that has worked so well in sort of traditional, I guess you can say, you know, campaigning that I think is something like, you know, a knowledge share that is not, is kind of underappreciated, mm. I think, especially in like sort of younger progressive movements. Like that's it really. You need to go out and talk to people. Yeah, believe it, it or not. <laughs> yeah. And not only like, because I mean, increasingly so obviously people are very like switched off from politics. It's, it's incredibly depressing. Um, no wonder they don't want to pay attention to, to the news or to ads, but they might pay attention to an actual human at their door. But it's also like a way of staying a bit grounded because I think you can, yeah, get lost in like, what are people saying on Twitter or what do the polls say or what is like, you know, the four, basically four media outlets in Australia saying about politics. So it's political education for Greens members and volunteers to understand what people actual ordinary people and voters dealing with in their everyday lives and what do they care about? Yeah, like I think people sometimes talk about going outside their bubble. Yeah, exactly. But going outside your bubble doesn't just mean reading things outside no. your bubble. It means talking to people and it doesn't mean necessarily like 
I think a lot of the time people fall into that false binary of if if I'm in a bubble, the opposite is who I need to talk to <laughs> yeah. without realising that there is a whole spectrum of different political ideals and understandings and that sort of thing. And, yeah, campaigning like in that and door knocking in that way really sort of keeps, like, like you said, keeps you grounded and mm. sort of gives you that idea of what people are thinking. Um, I want to touch on what you said, which is that people are kind of tired of <laughs> politics uh, and this is something I wanted to talk about with your podcast, which is called Serious Danger yeah. that you do with Tom Ballard. And the premise of the podcast, which is pretty unique in that it acknowledges the current system is something that people aren't happy with. And, you know, every election just feels more dispiriting than the last. And so what's the driver of that then? Is it just, uh, is it purely just informing people and like, you know, introducing them to people within the progressive movement? But is it also like perhaps like talking about figuring out a new way forward? Yeah. So the podcast, it's called Serious Danger. That's a reference to actually, I think a Scott Morrison quote, where he says, I've always found the Greens to be a real serious danger to Australia. And so (laughs) it's this kind of like, it is a bit like self-reflexive and it it kind of riffs on a lot of that conservative commentary about how scary and terrifying the Greens are and how they're going to totally, you know, um, destroy the Australian way of life or something or the system. (laughs) But it kind of takes that and be like, well, maybe the system and then the current way that we do things is actually worthy of being dismantled, at least in some, you know, fairly significant way. Um, because a lot of people are living really difficult lives um, and the system is certainly not built to, to serve the interests of the vast majority of people. Um, and so, yeah, it's a way of I, the podcast, I think, um, and, you know, Tom, Tom Ballard um, approached me about doing a podcast about the Greens that acknowledges that a lot of us are feeling so awful about the current state of politics and, um, you know, even the world. But how do we deal with those feelings? And it's kind of, you know, a way of like working through those feelings and figuring out what we do with them. And Tom, yeah, like Tom is very much that's because I think that I can get a little bit more, you know, uh, like black or I can get kind of, yeah, like there is no <laughs> Duma. Yeah, but, Duma. Um, but Tom is like super hopeful and he is, is very like conscious of driving this towards like actions. And so I think that's one, like we talk about, you know, current, current events and we talk about kind of like bigger issues and, um, yeah, thorny issues for, for movements like the Greens to, to deal with, like, how do we balance electoralism, um, in, in a system that's very much rigged versus other forms of, of, um, of activism or things like that, or, you know, how do we expand renewable energy without screwing over um, in Indigenous communities if we want to expand mining for, for minerals, things like that. Um, but we also, every show, we have, like, a call to action where we say you, after having listened to this, like, maybe somewhat cerebral or it might be depressing or it might just be kind of like an intellectual conversation now, when you finish this podcast, what can you go out and actually do? Um, whether it's like donating money or donating time or taking some sort of action that will actually make a difference for the movement that we're trying to advance. That's really fantastic because then, yeah, it makes people feel much more engaged than that sort of the sort of apathy that you know politics can tend to put on all of us, especially when you know you feel like you don't really have an alternative or you don't have a choice. Or like, you know, uh, sometimes democracy can feel a bit 
undemocratic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think like as well, the other purpose of, of serious danger is the fact that there really is no like space or very few spaces in media for discussion of an alternative vision to what's being offered by the major parties. Um, and particularly, oh, absolutely. yeah, like a lot of the time, the Greens policies just aren't even being mentioned um, in, in coverage of politics. And there are no spaces for Greens, you know, or Greens curious people even to like work through those ideas. So it's, yeah, creating space for that. Even just imagining a different future, a lot of the time when you get, um, this is sort of, it feels like an import from America um, that when you talk to, you know, Labor Party people or any sort of other kind of progressive um, which has similar policies to the federal government, um, there's always that sort of sense of, well, if you vote for us, then you know, we can do the things that you want to Mm. do, which is not really a promise because all the things that they've done previously have not sort of indicated that. And I think especially like millennials and Zoomers to an extent once they get to voting age have that sort of inherent mistrust of authority of like I'm not going to trust you at face value that you say that you're going to do what you're going to do because Mm. I've been burnt before yeah exactly yeah I think and people of all ages I would argue increasingly have that perspective um especially when it comes to politics and politicians yeah (laughs) do you do you uh, do you get much feedback from your listeners like you know do you have an understanding of what your demographic is it's a good point I mean sometimes like for example we had a message recently that was like I'm not a greens person but I really enjoy the podcast and we were kind of like oh interesting like why are you you listening um like I think it is a lot of the time it's it's people who are totally into the greens but it's also people who are maybe just like learning about politics and progressive politics and and might be sitting between like labor and the greens and kind of curious um and and looking for yeah like how to understand in more depth these ideas that they maybe have just like come across or wanting to know like how to do something about it I imagine um yeah I I would imagine that it's largely a younger audience but like as in probably more millennials but I don't really know to be honest yeah it's so hard to I think that's like the hardest part of like (laughs) podcasts or radio (laughs) or things like that sometimes you're not really sure who is listening, but sometimes when you get that little bit of feedback, it's just like, oh, wow, you know, who am I reaching with this? And all of a sudden, like, you know, that sort of world opens up where you realise, oh, that's right, anyone could be. Yeah. Um, and anyone could be getting something from it. I assume no one's listening. Like, <laughs> when I'm recording, <laughs> like, I think in my brain no one is listening. And so when someone is like, oh, yeah, I heard the podcast, it's almost like I'm like, oh, oh, it's it's a bit of a shock. Um, but, yeah, we're like, <laughs> we've had people literally, you know, like former Labor members who've then joined the Greens in Brisbane and started door knocking because of this. Um, or even we had this crazy story where Max Chandler Mather, who's the Greens candidate in Griffith, was door knocking and opened the door and this guy was like, oh, yeah, I know about you. Um, I heard about you on Serious Danger. I'm actually listening to it right now. Like, well, I know it's <laughs> out there in the world, but that's yeah, it's a little insane to me. <laughs> it's also so good in a way to know that, to get those little bits of affirmation oh, that, yeah. yeah, you know, e- even just like, Sometimes you can just feel like a bit of a random person just throwing your sort of thoughts out there into the world, but it means that you're not alone and there are other people yeah. who sort of have the same feelings as you. True. I think that's all we have time for today, but thank you so much, Emerald. I think we might catch up with you again as we get closer to the election day. Can you recommend any other 
podcasts or any other media that other people can listen to aside from Serious Danger? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think probably one that really inspired me, there's another podcast run by largely like South Brisbane um, leftists and people involved with the Greens called Floodcast. Um, it's, yeah, mostly like Brisbane-based commentators and they they talk about stuff from a very radical left standpoint um that's that's a really good one for yeah quite local politics i also i love i don't know if you've ever listened to the trillbilly workers party podcast ah yes i love them they're great (laughs) i feel like i relate to them because they're like the idea of you know queensland as this like ultra conservative redneck or kind of kicks like and them yeah yeah this is truly what they're like from the south the appalachian um, region in in the states and they talk about politics from this like socialist perspective just in this like conservative hard heartland uh, and I find that yeah. really interesting and somewhat relatable yeah yeah exactly <laughs> thank you so much Emerald um, we'll catch you. up again soon um, but thank you very much I would love that all right thanks Evie and that was Emerald Moon, who is from Brisbane and a former candidate for the Australian Greens, just talking about her podcast Serious Danger. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. We're coming up to the end of our show this morning. Um, Had lots of exciting interviews. Um, We started off listening to Vera Bukachi, who is the research director and co-lead of KDI Kenya. Um, She's dedicated her career to learning from, supporting and scaling community-led initiatives related to water, sanitation, waste and sustainability, especially within the communities in Kibera. Um, We followed that up with a conversation I had with Sam Rudolph from the Consumer Action Law Center, who is looking into the financial collapse of UPLA, also known as Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund or ACBF. Um, And she just talked us through what happened and how people who've been affected can get compensation. Then we heard an interview with Dr Holly Thorpe, who is from the University of Waikato in New Zealand, um, talking about her recent research and focusing on the ways New Zealand women have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. And then finally, we spoke to Emerald Moon, who is a Brisbane-based activist, talking about her podcast with Tom Ballard called Serious Danger. So that was our show for this morning. Um, As always, we will have a podcast up later today. So if you wanted to listen again or um, wanted to read our show notes, that will be available at 3cr.org.au slash Tuesday Breakfast. And stay tuned to breakfast shows the rest of this week. And we have Accent of Women coming up next. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.